So, um, can I um, uh, welcome you to this to this lecture in the uh, Gendering the Social Sciences series, which on this occasion is also co-sponsored by the government department. And I kind of woke up on Sunday thinking, you know, seeing the snow all around and thinking that uh, neither the speaker nor the audience would be able to get here. So I'm very relieved that the snow eventually went away. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Anne Phillips uh, from both the uh, Gender Institute and the government department. Just, just to sort of fill you in, the format will be uh, Shirin speak for about 50 minutes, for about 50 minutes and then we have uh, half an hour or so for question and answer and then a reception at the Gender Institute on the um, fifth floor of Columbia House. So it's my uh, very great pleasure to welcome Shirin Rai, who is Professor of uh, Politics and International Studies at uh, Warwick University. Uh, and also, at the moment, is a visiting uh, professorial fellow at the Gender Institute. Uh, Shirin's research interests are diverse, um, covering feminist politics, uh, gender and political institutions, uh, globalization, governance, and development studies. And uh, in the last four years, she's been involved with a, a fascinating comparative uh, research project which uh, looks at parliaments in the UK, India and South Africa um, and explores the gendered dimensions of the ritual and uh, ceremony that you find in parliamentary proceedings and there's an edited book that's come out of that ceremony and ritual in parliament. Uh, she's also written some very telling articles on gender and representation um, and the very kind of complex dynamics of class and gender in Indian debates about gender quotas. But her, her topic tonight uh, relates more closely to the work that she does on gender and the political economy of development. Um, she's uh, author of um, a book of that name, Gender and the Political Economy of Development, From Nationalism to Globalization, um, and also the later Gender Politics of, gender politics of Development. And among um, extensive editing work, um, I'll just mention that she's co-editor of Global Governance, Feminist Perspectives, and a recent special issue of the journal Signs on Feminists Theorize the International Political Economy. Um, we're very, very, very pleased to have her here. We're very pleased to have here her as a professorial fellow at the Institute and particularly pleased to have this occasion to hearing what I think is, is very much the development of, of new work in this field. Um, and she's talking on the topic of social reproduction and depletion, uh, mapping gendered harm. So please join me in welcoming Sharon Wright. Thank you very much for a very generous um, introduction. Um, and of course, I'm absolutely uh, delighted to be here, but also very honored that um, the Gender Institute um, has asked me to be a visiting professorial fellow. Um, I think my intellectual journey is very much linked to the Institute, or at least I should say members of individual members of the Institute, um, and obviously um, Sumi Madhok and Diane Perrins. And um, 
and along the way, some, some people from Warwick too. <laughs> so it's, it seems like um, as if I'm home from home. So thank you for your generous um, welcome. Um, as some of you might know, um, it's difficult for me to uh, figure out how much of the gender and development and political economy and literature you would be familiar with. So if I, if I assume something, please come back to me um, at, you know, when we have question and answers. But I, I think many of you would know that the World Development Report is just out, the new World Development Report on, on you know, 2012, and the focus of that report this year is on gender. Um, gender Equality and Development is the title of the uh, report, and it provides an interesting reading for various reasons, I think. Uh, but it, I think it is also of direct interest to me because of its emphasis on the current mobilization of women into the labor market. They give you lots of nice statistics about the, the increasing number of women being um, mobilized into the labor market and how good that is um, as an indicator for of women's equality. Um, and of course, for me, it's also interesting because it, uh, its approach to gender equality um, as a way of increasing the productivity of these women continues to be the concern of the bank. I said to myself once that I'll never call it the bank because that's what they want to call themselves all the time as if there's no other bank. So I should it's like a jealousy, we call it the school. <laughs> <laughs> or the institute. <laughs> um, the report, I think, uh, it, and so that kind of analysis brings to mind the work of some of the earliest, you know, Esther Bosrup's book, for example, was all about let's increase the productivity by bringing more women in, um, among other things, obviously. Um, the report also, I think, focuses um, on more representation of women in decision making, as well as suggesting that more equality now will lead to somehow better outcomes for future generations. But for me, the big silence there is about uh, something that um, colleagues who have worked um, on women and work in especially the East, Eastern European countries before 89 used to talk about all the time, which is the double burden. You know, So when we talk about 45 million women being sort of, you know, uh, mobilized into, into the labor market, well, who's doing the social reproductive work for them? And so what is happening at home? And of course, because the World Bank doesn't support the inclusion of social reproduction, uh, reproductive work towards, count, uh, you know, counting towards uh, GDP, it means, of course, that that silence is never addressed, and neither is it in this report. I mean, I've just had the chance to take a very quick look at it, and if you think that um, I'm misrepresenting it, then you should come back to me, but I don't think so. <laughs> so, again, as, as I think many of you, and I don't need to, to um, repeat this too many times, uh, feminists have long pointed to the unrecognized and unaccounted contribution of social reproductive work to national economies. What has been less studied, I think, and that's the subject of my talk today, is the consequence of this neglect for individuals, households, and communities engaged in social reproduction. So what are the consequences of that neglect of social reproduction itself? 
Where these consequences have been recognized, it has largely been, not always, but largely been in the context of economic crisis, such as the one that we are going through um, today. So when Diane Elson was writing about structural adjustment policies in the late 90s, um, she very pertinently pointed out the following, and I quote, if too much pressure is put on the domestic sector, um, sorry, I forgot about this. <laughs> James's work will, um, if too much pressure is put on the domestic sector to provide unpaid care, to make up for deficiencies elsewhere, the result may be a depletion of human capabilities. The domestic sector needs adequate inputs from all other sectors. It cannot be treated as a bottomless well, able to provide the care needed regardless of the resources it gets from other sectors. And I think she, at one of the talks that she gave at Warwick, she uh, gave the analogy of, of a rubber band. You know, you can keep stretching it, but there will be a point when it will just snap because you've stretched it too much. So I think that my starting point was really this work, but as you can see, the concern about sort of you know, not recognizing social reproductive work goes very far back to the recently released um, letters um, of Olive Shriners. Uh, and, and this comes from her very small little book uh, called Woman and Work. So, um, my motivation, though I take as my starting point Diane Elson's very pertinent insight, um, is really that this issue stems from our neglect of social reproduction, but also an, another concern of mine, which is regarding recognition and harm. Now, as you all know, the connection between non or misrecognition and harm is not new. Nancy Fraser and Butler have argued, um, Judith Butler have argued over the nature of capitalism, the injustices of distribution, and injustices of recognition. Butler was insistent that Fraser's perspectival dualism allowed issues of recognition to be trumped by those of economic, uh, economic distribution, while Fraser insisted that within her framework, stated or status order injuries as well as maldistribution injuries often go together. The underlying message of Fraser, however, seemed to suggest, at least definitely to suggest to Butler, um, that economic structure and the status order are not the same. Uh, that redistributive politics addresses economic structure and the recognition politics addresses issues of identity, which are important but not reducible to the structure. The way that this debate informs my understanding of depletion is this. That depletion as a concept is a linking element between the sphere of economic distribution and the sphere of recognition. Without recognition of social reproductive work, we can also not recognize the extent and intensity of harm that is done through depletion in the doing of this work and can therefore not address how it might be accounted for or reversed. So my argument is that those engaged in social reproduction experience depletion, albeit at different rates and levels in different social contexts. When there is a critical gap between their outflows, domestic, affective, and reproductive, the inflows that sustain their health and well-being, both mental and physical. 
that this depletion affects the households and communities within which social reproduction takes place. In absence of the recognition of the value of social reproduction and its measurement, depletion also is obscured and therefore cannot be systematically mapped or the issues addressed. The increases, this increases economic vulnerability and in times of crisis exacerbates the social costs of market failure. The mapping of depletion and research into reversing it is therefore urgent. Now, as Anne um, pointed out already or told you, this is emerging work. I'm just starting to do this work. Uh, but this is also, um, as you might imagine, given um, what I've said so far, interdisciplinary work, as well as, I think, I have to say, a, this is collaborative work. So it's interdisciplinary in that we are trying to look at both psychological well-being as well as physical well-being. So I'm trying to look at some health reports, etc., on the one end of the spectrum, um, but also legal issues around property and compensation, um, and not property so much, but work and compensation and compensation of dep for depletion. And so two of my colleagues who couldn't be here today, one for social reproductive reasons in the sense that her childcare <laughs> broke down the whole, um, very finely balanced as, as these things are, um, are Catherine Hoskins and uh, Dania Thomas who's at Keele. She's a lawyer. So um, the literature and debates, as I've already indicated on social reproduction, uh, are both wide and sophisticated, and many in this room in sort of, you know, have contributed to these. But let me very briefly outline the concept of social reproduction as we use it in this work. We understand social reproduction as comprising three elements. Biological reproduction, which carries with it the provision of sexual, emotional, and affective services that are required to maintain family and intimate relationships, together with, of course, the production of labor. You know, bearing children. Um, the second is um, unpaid production in the home of both goods and services. This includes different forms of care as well as social provisioning and voluntary work directed at meeting the needs um, in and of the community. And the third is reproduction of culture and ideology which stabilizes and sometimes challenges um, dominant social relations. Before going any further, I think it's important to acknowledge that scholars have worried about viewing domestic work through dichotomized lens of work, non-work. Sue Himmelwhite, whose work I admire greatly, is one of those. Some of their concerns have been about the commodification of domestic work um, and also about the overlooking of the rewards, affection, love, satisfaction, respect, and joy that, is, that this work can bring with it. So our purpose is not to disregard this concern, quite the contrary. Rather, it is to understand how we might reconnect the spheres of social reproduction and production in a feminist analysis which recognizes as well as attempts to uh, measure uh, depletion. Because this is important, not simply about depletion per se, but be it, because it affects the sustainability of social reproductive work. Um, if we are not able to, again, to go back to Diane Elson, if we are not able to think about the costs of social reproductive work, then we cannot see it 
sort of, you know, sustaining over time without something giving. And very often what gives is um, the well-being of those who are involved in this. So what we, what we are wanting to do is to, to make those awards, uh, rewards of satisfaction, etc., the positives available to all those who are engaged in uh, social reproduction, not just those who are able to defray the costs of social reproductive work. So in order to present this argument, I will do the following. First, I will examine in more detail the implications of choosing depletion as a key concept and will define it. I will then go on to identify three main sites in which we think depletion takes place, that of the individual, the household, and the community. Following on from this, I will argue that depletion can be seen as harm to individuals, families, households, and communities, which needs to be measured and compensated for. And finally, I will examine how depletion could be reversed through three processes, which we call mitigation, replenishment, and transformation. We can understand social reproduction as well as depletion not only in the broader social con we can only understand it in the um, uh, broader social context of states and markets which have tried to I don't know whether you can um, uh, see the small type um, of the international political economy. In this diagram, in a paper that we did, uh, wrote in 2007, Catherine Hoskin and I wanted to map out these intersecting fields of production and reproduction, accumulation and redistribution, and the consequences of unrecognized social reproduction as depletion. Now, if you think about it, what we did was, and again, Diane Elson uh, has also got a map, uh, mapping of, of uh, international political economy, with the same problem for me, as I've done more work on depletion. What I'd like to do, if I have the capabilities to do this diagram again, is to show that the depletion is not leaving the system. Right? The depletion really is systemic. It goes back into the system as a subsidy to capital. But I couldn't, I tried so hard this time, there was a student of mine who had helped me do this, and I couldn't, so I just have to tell you that that's what it should look like. Um, we know from the work of feminist political economists and participants uh, that participants come to specific markets with unequal capabilities, bargaining capacities and resources. Sen has worked on it, Nasbaum has worked on it, um, uh, I think Barbara Harris-White has done some really excellent work on um, local markets in India. Class and gender are two axes of unequal power relations operating in the market. Both distort its benefits. For example, social reproduction can be done by domestic workers in a care chain that is increasingly global. The extent of this poses serious challenges for those engaged in what is largely poorly paid work, but which is nevertheless essential for their survival and which defrays depletion for those they are working for. They have to cope with the burden of work for wages as well as social reproduction in their own homes. And in fact, as some excellent work that um, um, Julie Graham did just before she died, she contributed to this um, special issue of science that Anne mentioned, um, is to start thinking of how this global care chain is restructuring households into what she called global households. 
So our, our idea of the household itself is being globalized through these um, extended global care chains. Thus, for some, the market can be beneficial as a space in which labor and wages are exchanged, but unless there is a recognition of the costs of doing this um, work or of the subsidy which this provides to the market, these, these benefits of the market obviously remain unequal. And you could argue also, of course, that in times of crisis such as today, that inequality is on the rise. So despite what the World Bank report says, uh, I think it poses problems for us as well as um, resolves them for some. Markets, of course, are also shaped by state regulation and intervention, despite what the neocons might want to tell us. This becomes particularly visible during periods of economic crisis. Examining the current economic crisis, Fraser has just recently argued that social protection in Polanyan terms is being undermined within state policy structures, and this in turn is affecting the boundaries of social reproduction as well as the development of human capabilities. One could argue that the restructuring of states and markets are leading to a situation where the subsidy provided by social reproduction is being increasingly relied upon to fill the gaps in the state provision of welfare. So where the state withdraws, you know, some of that literature, the structural adjustment literature from the 80s seems to never leave us because, you know, as each crisis unfolds, we realize that that's what's happening. The, where's this idea of big society coming from, for example? You know, you fill in the gaps that, that emerge because of um, the withdrawal of, of state provision. So I think you cannot understand, we cannot understand social reproduction, social reproductive work, costs of social reproduction without taking on board the, sort of the global states and markets and the way they intersect. What of course very often happens is that the domestic sector is generally hidden from view and we just wanted to make that explicit in this diagram. So what is depletion then? Um, this is just a little uh, thing to impress you with. I mean, I'm quite impressed with myself. No. <laughs> um, we were trying to figure out a way, as an easy way of um, conceptualizing what depletion might look like. Depletion has been used largely in the context of the environment in a specific sense as reduction of quantity in a, a non-renewable resource or something that cannot be replaced. Environmental accounting addresses the differences between normal consumption of fixed capital, obsolence, damage, wear and tear, depletion, extraction or reduction, uh, reducing the value of, and degradation, reduction, the uh, reducing the function of. We suggest that depletion best applies to social reproduction. However, we use this concept rather differently and as follows. Our um, understanding of depletion suggests that individuals, households, and communities expend identifiable resources over time in doing social reproductive work. So um, hence the, the RT. At a particular point in time, we can arrive at the current stock of resources available in each of these sites by calculating the difference between resource outflows used up in the provision of social reproduction and the resource inflows. 
So some examples of inflows would be medical care, rest and leisure. I was do looking at a um, time use survey uh, in India that the, gov that the government uh, produced in which meditation was also uh, an element of uh, these inflows. You know, how much time do you have for yourself? Um, and I think in a 24-hour day, meditation came to two minutes. So um, important things, these um, inflows. Um, in terms of uh, households, income, obviously, of the household, time spent collectively as a household, political participation for communities and support networks and, and volunteering. And outflows would be, of course, time and energy uh, spent on caring, domestic chores, repairs, and volunteering. The difference between the two represents the net outflow of current stock of resources. So the resource stock is sensitive to the existing stock of resources and also to the outflows expended towards normal wear and tear, because obviously we are all getting older, right? So, or uh, we might get tired uh, after doing, expending a particular kind of energy. It doesn't matter that you're running on a treadmill or you're looking after your child. The body will get tired. The point here is what happens in terms of the inflows? Okay. What repairs? So there will be a, a, a depletion in terms of normal wear and tear, which is, of course, also what the environmental accountants um, take into account. However, if our point is, after accounting for normal wear and tear, the inflows that would otherwise replenish available stocks are reduced without a concomitant reduction in outflows used up in socially productive work, there is a measurable deterioration in the sustainability of those engaged in social reproduction. More specifically then, when resource stock, uh, stock deteriorates or falls below a threshold, which is the TH, uh, there is depletion of those engaged in social reproduction, which is what we refer to as DSR. Now, you could say, well, how would you know what the threshold is? Right? It's, not, um, it, it, it's not something that we have been able to yet sort of, you know, fix, and we, I don't think that we can fix. Similarly, um, well, there are lots of problems there. Um, the consequences of DSR are not linear, right? DSR in one site can and does affect resources in other sites. If you've got a, a person who loses their job, it's an individual who loses the income, but actually the effect might be on the household or even the community if they were subscribing to some, some community um, uh, groups, but equally it could be non-linear in the sense that a community might gain the labor of this person who has lost a job because they were going away doing, you know, nine to five. We don't know that yet, but the threshold is something that we are trying to figure out for different, different uh, sites of social reproductive work, but it's not going to be easy and we are quite aware of that. 
We are also um, uh, worried about the fact that do all units engaged in social reproductive work show the same wear and tear? Some people might be actually very strong, naturally strong, genetically strong. So how do we do it? And obviously the issues around aggregation and scale would be quite important there. Thirdly, how does this change over time and with access to different resources? So you could think about social reproductive work and that threshold being A, but actually if my inflows are suddenly upped and so I'm in a better job, I'm able to bring in more uh, domestic labor, um, or I choose not to have children, um, which are probably the single most depleting thing that one can do. Um, so then, you know, it could be, it could change rather dramatically or children go away or you become single all of a sudden for whatever reason, etc. So there are, there are issues that we have to think about, but I think that this is where we are um, uh, uh, at the moment. Okay. Now, I, finally, I also want to say that, that though this is um, where we are, we are also aware that uh, DSR is not irreversible, that it can be mitigated by interventions that boost inflow, in, in, in input flows. Um, and of course, that states and markets play a critical role in that. So the way we have defined DSR then, which is what I'll call it from now, does not express the normal wear and tear of those engaged in this work. Rather, it points to the particular conditions of social unsustainability rooted in dominant modes of production of commodities and of social reproduction. We see DSR as referring to those structural aspects of social reproduction that undermine the sustainability of the everyday lives of women and men in a given social context. Defining DSR in this way allows us to note the importance of misrecognition of uh, social reproduction in different sites. Measurement is an important form of recognition. Before discussing issues related to measurement, however, I will outline the three sites in which social reproduction takes place and therefore where DSR might be identified. The first site of DSR, and I've been talking about this uh, throughout, but I just want to, to focus on each one uh, now, is the embodied individual engaged in social reproductive work, embedded in households and community and enmeshed in social relations. These social relations are historically specific, culturally contested, and affect the ways in which bodies are viewed, used, abused, work, and are worked upon depleted and renewed, consent and resist. In terms of resource inflows, we need to measure health, well-being and selfhood to understand how DSR affects the individual body. The DSR of the individual can be physical, as measured by, say, the body mass index, tiredness, exhaustion, sleeplessness, Sumi will know a lot about that, uh, health, clothing, heating, access to clean water, etc. It can also be mental. The undermining of the self, feelings of guilt and apprehension, the insufficient time for oneself, the enjoyment of the family and family fr and friendships, and to participate in community life. All these factors can, if they fall below the threshold of normal wear and tear, deteriorate the well-being outcomes and reduce the capability of individuals to carry out social reproduction in the long term. 
In certain circumstances, they can even lead to increased morbidity. The household is the second site of depletion that we identify. Now, I know that the household is a really contested term um, socially as well, you know, uh, politically, um, as we know from the work of Safa and, and Ravanpura in the context of Sri Lanka, among many others. The UK census defines the household in the following way. A household is one person living alone or a group of people, not necessarily related, living at the same address who share cooking facilities and also share a living room, sitting room, or dining area. <laughs> Make of it what you will. For our purposes, we have, here we define the household simply as a site where social reproduction takes place. DSR of households could then include the decrease in collective household um, resources, leisure time spent together by members of the household as a result of extensions to the, um, extensions to the working day, failure to manage the consequences of an increase in the number of household members engaged in wage labor, and reduced support structures. It would also include the rate of repair of household infrastructure, including enough disposable income to carry out essential repairs to the fabric of the house, improving the environment of the house to support the members of the household, such as heating and water. So DSR could be influenced by intangible factors, such as the adverse effect of the standing of the household in the community. This might include the ability of the household to raise resources, inflows for childcare, funerals, decisions about schooling and training for, uh, and for improving the life chances of the members of the household. Now, in a wonderful piece, which I was going to say, I told Anya that I'm going to talk about, uh, or at least mention, um, Dan Perrins and Anya Plomian, and I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, have done a wonderful piece of work on the handyman in London. Is it just London? Um, uh, more or less, uh, who are basically supporting the men within the domestic, uh, largely men, um, within uh, the domestic sphere by doing things like gardening or, or doing the DIY bits, which are obviously not DIY when they are doing it. Um, and I just <laughs> wanted to put to you that really it's not just, when we think about domestic work, we always think about women doing the care work. But it's actually, as a household, men are also buying in labor to offset social reproductive responsibilities. Now, that does allow us to think about social reproductive work in, in different ways. It definitely made me think of, of it in different ways, because it somehow um, un unpacked the care work, domestic work, social reproduction link. And it made me realize that it's actually much bigger. So thank you for that. Um, that it's a much, uh, uh, much more encompassing um, issue. And actually, it is an encompassing issue for the household because very often the the young men, there's only few here, uh, are now under pressure to show that they are fully engaged members of the social reproductive clan, right? Uh, and what came out of this work was how do you negotiate that then? How do you want to work, spend more time with your family, be a good dad to your kids at the weekend? Well, then who's going to do the fabric maintenance of the household, which is, of course, a very gendered um, role as well. 
So a lot of interesting um, issues uh, come up. But our concern with the overlooked consequences of DSR thus blurs this clear dem demarcation between the public and the private domains for the purposes of delineating the areas of intervention also by the state and through social policy. We argue that the extent and impact of DSR on individuals and household is sensitive to the and um, impacts um, DSR in communities, which is the third site of um, DSR that we identify. Now the community, if household is a, a contested concept, so is the community. As Fraser notes in another context, we need to ask whether the community that is being disintegrated is worth preserving. This moral question, she says, um, deserves a central place in the critique of capitalist society. Well, Sumi Madhok and I have written a paper on, on uh, agency and risk, and one of the things that we explore there is about how communities can be very dangerous spaces um, within which um, political work takes place. And we need to be aware of that. Here, of course, I mean, our concern is slightly different. We rely on the concept that um, Iris Marion Young has developed where she talks about communities as collectives of persons defined by cultural forms, practices, or ways of life. And our expressions of social relations defined not primarily by a set of shared attributes, but by a sense of identity. DSR of communities that we identify would include the shrinking of the commons, which is a real problem just now, of resources held and used in common, spaces for community <coughs> mobilization, the lack of time commitments from those mobilized into paid work, and the depletion of community uh, resources that comes from, um, comes with the non-use rather than the extensive or irresponsible use of community networks. So highlighting these three sites also makes clear the limitations of relying on individual consent as a norm that legitimates the non-recognition of social reproduction at its cost, the DSR, and the consequences of this for society. So I will now very quickly um, uh, discuss DSR as harm. And in the paper, in the longer paper, we discuss DSR in terms of four, well, we look at four aspects of harm. First, as discursive harm. That is negating work in the domestic sector while through this negation affirming gendered social hierarchies and distinctions of class and race. Second, we can study harm as emotional harm. For example, what I said earlier about, about undermining the sense of self, our subjectivities. Examples would be guilt associated by being a working mother. You know, every time you leave your child um, at, at a nursery, somehow um, it seems that we are doing um, harm to our children. Well, there's, as far as I can see, very little in terms of um, robust research to prove that, but we carry that gendered guilt with us. Third, we can study harm as a non-regulation of the working body within the home. Now, this is highly problematic, and I'm not advocating it, but it is interesting that, um, you know, that uh, gendered, which can take place through gendered regimes which allow multiple births and abortions, lack of sleep and leisure, injuries during the daily work, which are often characterized as a result of carelessness, 
um, and seen as episodic rather than related to the levels of stress. So I'm not advocating that the state should start uh, sort of regulating the body within the home now, but in many cases it already does in terms of domestic violence, for example. But because this is not recognized as harm, we don't think about it as, as something that needs to at least be, be um, considered. Finally, we can ex examine the concept of harm as linked to the issues of access to formal modes of justice. Citizenship entitlements, as we know, tend to follow the recognition of the contribution of individuals and groups to society through tax. And we are hearing a lot of that just now, you know, we the taxpayer. Um, with the non-recognition of social reproduction and the DSR that accrues through it, we constitute groups as non-contributors to the economy and therefore, although the recipients of its welfare, perhaps not entirely worthy of it. Conceptualizing DSR as harm, therefore, is an important device which helps to clarify issues of recognition, resource distribution, and claim making, as well as to identify strategies for reversing its effects. Now, I think I've, I'm taking too much time, so I'm going to um, be very um, brief now. Um, those are some of the um, ways in which um, social reproduction uh, has been or, uh, or can be um, measured. But how, my concern here is how we might measure DSR. I think there are some difficulties. I was having a chat with Diane Perrin earlier about um, measuring DSR that we can outline straight away. First, the irregular and uneven nature of DSR. Second, the challenge of aggregating different forms of DSR at different levels and in different sites. The fact that the third, the capacity to do uh, social reproductive work involves renewable as well as finite resources, complicates the criteria used to recognize and measure DSR. And fourth, the challenge of devising methodologies and units of measurements which are valid across the different sites of DSR, which is why I was laughing about the RT and also the TH in the equation. However, the measurement of DSR is important, I think, for two reasons, or at least attempting to measure it. First, theoretically, it strengthens the case of recognizing social reproductive work within the production boundary, which is set by the system of national accounts the UN system of national accounts, which is still excluding uh, social reproduction from, um, in, in sort of, you know, from the production boundaries. Second, it also raises the issue about adequate compensation for DSR. In terms of developing measures for D, uh, DSR at the three different sites that I've um, outlined, the work has not yet begun. So really, if there are any budding economists in this room, um, please let me know, and, and I'm hoping to do some um, uh, work on, it, on this um, next year. Um, right. So how would, but it, it, you know, I think we can still have some, some uh, indications as to how we might go about um, uh, measuring. And that, a lot of that work has come from um, environmental accountants and feminist economists, which we have detailed um, in our paper. So we could be looking at issues of mental and physical health, 
stress-related illnesses, anxiety, exhaustion, time spent, so time use surveys are really important there. Uh, we could be looking at viability um, of the household itself. Um, we could be looking at levels of income and distribution, the changing patterns of labor and consumption, tasks performed during, including all forms of care, decision making and issues raised in intra-household bargaining. We could be looking at the thickness of social networks, the incentives and disincentives that people have to join these networks and, and community initiatives. By measuring DSR in this way, we can demonstrate not only the value of social reproduction, but also the costs attached to it. We should be able to demonstrate the importance of adequate inflows into doing social reproductive work, and similarly, offsetting or minimizing uh, the, the harm. Similarly, through measuring DSR, we should be able to map the extent or intensiveness of the harm that DSR can do if not addressed. This will allow us then to think through appropriate strategies for reversing these harms. So what I want to do now is to look at three strategies that we think we can conceptualize um, in terms of um, reversing the DSR. The first is what we have called mitigation. As a strategy for reversing DSR, this occurs when individuals attempt to lessen the consequences of DSR by, for example, paying for help or sharing tasks across gender. Adopting mitigating strategies would include paying others to do tasks such as childcare and cleaning, using labor-saving appliances and buying convenience foods. Women with lower incomes and fewer resources are less able to use these mitigating strategies. This whole area exposes the differences in the effects of DSR, not only between North and South, but between different classes, races, and regions within particular national contexts. Inequality is therefore built into mitigation and poses challenges as a result, although this remains the most directly available strategy to address DSR. The second way of reversing DSR is what we call replenishment. This is where states or private bodies contribute to inflows, as Elson suggests that go some way to lessen the effects of DSR without necessarily regarding it, um, recognizing it as harmful in the ways that I've specified earlier. This would involve such state measures as tax breaks, state benefits, regulation of conditions of work, as well as availability of healthcare and free schooling, education in terms of reproductive education as well as, as um, others. Replenishment would also include the work of voluntary associations and other non-state actors which assist households to cope with DSR, but without addressing its structural causes necessarily. While obviously helpful in lessening DSR, these interventions are extremely variable and always in danger from cutbacks in times of economic crisis and um, changing value systems, as we are uh, experiencing now in, in this country. Struggles for consolidating and expanding social protection and community networks are important aspects of political action that must accompany the strategy to reverse DSR. The third way to reverse DSR we term transformation, which involves structural change. There are two aspects to transformation in this context. The first is the restructuring of gendered social relations. So those handymen might be working for women as well as for men. 
uh, that could be one, or that men might be working across that gender divide and doing much more of the care or equal care, which is what I was reading in which inequalities matter, in fact, the insistence upon equality and parity rather than just a little bit more, as Anne um, put it very nicely. This would transform not only the lives of millions of women who, are, who largely bear the burden of this work today, but would also mean the restructuring of wider social relations as gender-based inequalities outside the home are challenged to equalize social reproductive work. The second aspect of transformation is the issue of recognition and evaluation of social reproduction and therefore of DSR. The question here is whether capital can bear the costs of this valuation. If they are to be successful, both these transformative arenas need strategies that cut across public-private, north-south divides. Struggles for transforming both these arenas have been ongoing and have seen some successes, formal and informal, legal, constitutional, and discursive. But as yet, these successes have not led to systemic transformations. However, if we see successful transformation not as a single revolutionary event that will change our lives and everything else, but as a bundle of changes that may add up to transformation over a period of time, then we may see some elements of that bundle emerging from and through these struggles for gender equality and the valuation of social reproduction. These strategies are of course not fixed and the boundaries for these for boundaries between them remain fluid. We just separate them out as a heuristic device. In some ways, mitigation and replenishment, one could argue, while hugely important in themselves, could be seen to take the edge of the crisis of DSR. Transformation remains far from realizable at the moment. So, in conclusion, I have argued that without recognizing and measuring the costs of DSR, we cannot address the growing pressures of those involved in social reproduction on an everyday basis. These costs are harmful in different sites in different ways. These costs are not linear but are produced in complex circumstances and therefore pose a challenge in terms of their measurement as well as in their reversal. While the former is still far from being realized, there are some indications of shifts in compensatory regimes, especially at the individual level. I've also argued that this capitalist system depends on the subsidy that social reproduction provides, and that this subsidy, when not acknowledged, leads to harm, both status-based, gendered harm, and harm because of maldistribution. We have theorized this harm as DSR, which is a component of the subsidy that social reproduction provides capital. So in this context, we are suggesting that the merely cultural, in terms of the recognition of unequal gendered relations, is central to the reproduction of the capitalist system. The non-recognition of these inequalities is injurious to those engaged in social reproductive work. Now, it could be that social reproductive work is done by both men and women in hetero or homosexual households. If this were the case, then the question of subsidy that this work provides would be perhaps less sensitive to, arguably, less sensitive to issues of recognition, but the question of redistribution will still remain salient. 
that despite the existence of a huge amount of research, lobbying and campaigns, socially productive work remains outside the production boundary, might have theoretically nothing to do with the fact that this work is done by women. But when we put this in the context of wider gendered inequalities, the gender segregation of work and the empirical evidence of women's concentration in this work arena, then the issue of recognition of social reproduction does not seem unrelated to other, to, to gendered hierarchies. Transformation of gender hierarchies then is critical to reversing the negation of social reproduction, the reproductive work. This position is different from Fraser's, who argues that a status injury, such as that suffered by lesbians and gays in a homophobic world, is analytically distinct from and conceptually irreducible to the injustice of maldistribution, although it may be accompanied by the latter. It is also different from her position that we can identify which primary harm is suffered in different situations whether it is economic or status order harm, which will determine the route to transformation of the situation. In relation to Butler's argument regarding the cultural and the economic, our argument is also different. We have shown that it is the nature of work that is providing the subsidy to capital, rather than those who do this work. The point here is that through the struggles for justice to address gender, e gender equality, there is a shift in the nature of those doing social reproductive work, that is, if there is gender parity in delivering social reproduction, the subsidy to capital would still continue and could cause harm to those involved in its provision, if not adequately compensated. In that context, the politics of recognition does not lead seamlessly to the politics of redistribution. It is theoretically possible that men and women participate in terms of parity in uh, social reproduction without bringing this work within the production boundary. Our approach is therefore making a distinction between mitigatory, replenishing, and transformative strategies to address DSR. By making this distinction, we suggest that while structural barriers to including socially productive work within the production boundary continue to exist, we need to be vigilant in the context of the crisis of capitalism that addressing DSR does not lead to the privatizing of risk with mitigatory strategies at the one end leading to the increased DSR down the care chain. So what our research on DSR shows so far is that the maintenance and extension of social protection that the state provides, replenishment strategy in our schema, is important to struggle for. The defense of social protect protection then becomes an urgent task in times of crisis. Delivering justice then remains tied to both the transformation of gendered social relations and to addressing maldistribution of resources in capitalist re regimes of accumulation, production, and exchange. The recognition, measurement, and compensation of social reproduction and DSR then remains a critical issue for gender equality. Thank you.
very virtual recognition of whether something is in the national accounts. I mean, does it make any difference? I mean, if something becomes, you know, like recognized in the sense of officially counted or measured, what's the, in what way might that actually give the impetus to real strategies for change? So, I don't, I don't yeah, I mean, it's really is a very naive question about sort of what, What's the, what counts as sure. recognition in that, sure. in that context? Shall I just answer that? Yeah, let me just stop. Just one question. Okay. <laughs> um, I think um, the simple answer to that is uh, that it um, is important at two different levels. Right? One is um, if you think about what is now accepted across the board almost, um, the domestic work can increase the GDP of a country by 40%. So that is the value of the work that is not being counted, approximately. I think um, that's largely now what is regarded by those, unless somebody wants to um, say that that's not the case. I think the Canadian, um, the South African, the Rwandan, the Australian satellite accounts all came up with around that, and including the UK. So the recognition of domestic work um, at, at that level of policy making, which may, doesn't mean then that in order for that work to be seen as valuable, you have to make or take recourse to other kinds of affective arguments. Oh, this is really good for, you know, we contribute through bringing up the next generations, or we do this, or we do that. But actually seeing it as economically of value. I think that is an extremely important starting point for addressing the issue of gender equality, I think. Um, because you are not constructing them. That is why I brought up the issue of harm in terms of formal modes of just access to formal modes of justice. That you are actually seen as citizens, not as recipients of welfare. So the claim-making process of citizenship can be different. The second, I think, is also um, interesting, and again, a parallel with the environmental accountants who are also arguing along the same lines, um, but from a completely opposite angle, is, is, is uh, relevant here. The environmental accountants are saying that actually all these uh, uh, figures for growth that you talk about, if you build in, if you debit from them the costs that are being uh, incurred by the environment, our earth today and our, our children tomorrow, then these growth figures will not be so great. So the e economic logic that, that uh, the rational choice model that is so often brought up to, to um, understand gender inequalities would be um, uh, challenged. Now, where I think you're absolutely, uh, um, it's, it's really interesting that you brought up this question, uh, is to say, well, okay, so, you know, I could say on grounds of class. Now, recognition of waged work, poorly waged work, has not meant that class-based inequalities have gone away. Um, and that is where uh, we, we, and not just we, most feminist economists would say, well, actually, that is why we bring up the issue of whether social reproductive work 
I mean, you know, can capital bear that burden? So right from, from Engels, you know, family, private property, and the state, the whole point is that capital that can't wear, bear that burden. And that is why it doesn't allow that work to be recognized. Because if it did bear that burden, everything would be so much more expensive for us, right? So, um, so in that context, I think that you are right, that it is not a panacea which is what I was saying at the end, that one thing will not seamlessly, recognition will not seamlessly lead to, but it provides you with a bottom line to struggle for and struggle with. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed your talk, and I really um, appreciate what you're trying to do. Um, the fact that you're trying to get to something measurable is, is really laudable. Um, my concern is, if you're going to try and speak to people who normally do these measurements, and you try and motivate it quantitatively like you did with your, your model of the threshold, what you're going to get are people reacting to you and telling you that you can't possibly measure it at all because what you're dealing with is a multi-dimensional problem, which is why economists reduce everything to utils. And you're dealing with a matrix algebra problem, which you don't have when you're using environmental accounting. So I was looking at your equation, trying to figure out, well, what could you use? And it seems to me what you do have that you could draw on instead of environmental accounting, which is a very different problem, I think, from what you're getting at, is the capabilities approach, which is a matrix algebra problem with inputs, conversion factors, and a matrix of what people can do and be. Your depletion would be in the matrix algebra problem. And I think you're going to be able to speak much more clearly to people who approach things quantitatively and try and measure them by using a mathematics that they could understand more readily and draw parallels with. Because I think what you might do at the moment is get a situation where people look at your equation and just say what you're trying to do is futile. And in fact, you actually have a theoretical framework. And I started to worry when I was going to ask this question, thinking, well, OK, am I just telling you that all you're doing is capabilities? But because you're bringing in the multiple layers, mm. what you're actually doing is enriching the capabilities approach, which is very individualistic. And I'd really encourage you to think about using that as kind of uh, a conceptual framework, a, a sort of motivating quantitative framework. Because I think if you want to sort of cross disciplines and speak to people, that might actually give you a lot more traction. Mm. No, I think sort of, you know, you know we have, um, it will resolve one problem. I think we've already, we, we've thought about that, but it might create another problem for us, which is that, you know, you can't take the methodology without taking the framework. And the framework is a slightly different framework from what we want. So that is why we started by doing things sort of, you know, I'm conscious of, of that capabilities inevitably are going to be part of what we try and measure. Uh, but what we are wanting to embed this whole discussion in is social relations of capitalism in the way that capability, to my mind and my reading, doesn't do. And so it is troublesome, and it might be that, that we still have to methodologically, I think, uh, you're absolutely right, that might have to look that way. But this is, as I said, this is very helpful for me to, to hear you say this, because it's about thinking through some of the work that, which is very new for us as well. And I'm, I'm trying to 
not have a situation where further down the line, uh, the, the method and the framework don't speak to each other as well. Um, so, but I think, yes, and also I'm trying, I was saying to Diane earlier, I'm trying to talk to economists who are either immediately going down the individual road, they don't want to talk about the, you know, the multi-level um, issues very much at all, or that they are much more comfortable, you're quite right, with the capability framework, because, you know, that's been done. It's, it's something that is also uh, recognized. Um, but, yes, I, I still have to think these, these issues through, and it's not going to be easy, and that's why I wanted to highlight the problems of measurement. And I think also some ways it connects with Anne's question, which is that should we be measuring these things, right? Um, my instinct first was that, you know, you need to convince people and for which you need to show, you need to demonstrate the level of uh, DSR that we are talking about because just now we know the level of social reproductive works contribution, potential contribution. We don't know at what cost. And so where the environmental accounting, or at least the literature, or, or come, uh, their argument becomes um, valid is that actually that 40%, if we debit DSR from that, might actually be not as high as we think it is. And that poses different problems for feminist economists. So it's a debate that we are having within and amongst ourselves. And, but I think, thank you for that. That's uh, really interesting. Um, thank you very much, Shirin. Um, I mean, I, I find the work very, very interesting and um, original. And I think one of the kind of key contributions is in terms of naming uh, the issue as one that needs to be put on the agenda. Um, but rather as Wendy, I mean, I mean, I was saying to you earlier, actually, why don't you use capabilities? But then uh, your response, I think, is, is quite a good one in the sense that you're trying to think, um, well, particularly to go beyond the individual approach to think more in terms of the relationship between well-being and the ways in which that can, uh, the ways in which that's very much influenced by the, well, well what you're referring to as this, this subsidy to capitalism. But anyway, going back to the um, World Bank report and the ways in which that talks about the way uh, female increases in female employment will increase overall output, I think, rather than necessarily productivity. They use productivity, but I think effectively they're talking about output. Um, I mean, but, but, but I mean, that is a sort of way in for you to talk about the costs of that and, and what is negated in the process. Because if you have a simple transfer from working at home to working in the economy, then it, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to any real increase in output, but just a, a, a kind of apparent one, mm -hmm. given the way in which the statistics are measured, which is, of course is an argument for including reproduction within the uh, national accounts. But I mean, the point I wanted to make was, if you do want to make the link with capitalism, and to think about the kind of ways in which this work produces uh, a kind of subsidy for capitalism. I, I just wonder whether you, know, you might not think more in terms of thinking about um, historical change and thinking about the ways in which the share of overall resources going to, cap going to work, going to capitalism has changed historically and varies cross-nationally between countries. Uh, in that sense, you, you know, there is the capacity for doing things differently. And then thinking about 
thinking about what the how depletion works out in those different contexts where the you know the share going to labor is actually higher uh, so you, so you sort of link the macro and the micro which is what I think you're trying to do and in that that regard I, I just wonder you know a you could think about the varieties of capitalism kind of literature or B, you know, thinking more in terms of people who've looked at it from the income side more, to think about, you know, the work on basic income. And then there was a talk the other day at the LSE from the New Economics Foundation, thinking about redistributing time, which is another way of thinking about, you know, the 21 hours, hours model, which is, um, is, is quite interesting. And then the other thought I had, just, just beforehand when we were talking, you were saying that you mentioned it to Debbie Budlander, who said, well, this is too Marxist in orientation. And I was thinking, how, <laughs> do they, how, do, how do they kind of get that? How does she sort of get that out of that? And then all the time you were thinking, I was thinking, oh, yes, you know, Marx and the socially necessary labor time and how that varies historically. So, you know, I'm not convinced. I think the concept is absolutely, you know, very profound, and very interesting and, and, and um, brings a kind of new set of issues onto the agenda, but I'm not convinced by this complex measuring. I mean, if you think of capabilities, it ends up being a statistic, you know, rather like the HDI. And I can't see that you will ever get, make a great deal of progress in, in mapping all these things, you know, given, given the variation. But if you think about what's required to produce a level of non-depletion, that might be a, a way forward. I think all these uh, thoughts um, come and go out of my head, you know, when I th try and think about it, uh, because it is really very um, uh, interesting in the way in which I, I, I like that formulation, what is required for depletion to be minimized, right? And to, to build that up conceptually. Now, again, I mean, I'd say what I said to the, the the previous person, which is that measurement is politically quite dodgy, actually. Uh, and we know that from all kinds of things. But measurement also is a very important way of recognition. Um, so all I can say is I think what I'm, what I'm, where I am now is to identify the problem, see which areas we are working, we need work in. Um, without thinking that I'm definitely going to measure. So my instinct, of course, as a political economist is not to do modeling, is not to do sort of, you know, all these equations. My instinct is to do interviews. My instinct is to go and talk to women and say to them, okay, you know, let's, how tired do you feel at the end of the day? Um, interestingly, of course, you know, the economists are very fond of doing these field experiments right now. So, you know, they're actually making human beings into <laughs> objects, which I find amazing ethically. Um, but, you know, in a very small way, we all know that, right? And sort of, you know, I felt I was part of a field experiment just recently because, you know, my partner had a bad back. He was lying on the floor, not doing anything in the house, not able to, not that he didn't want to. But because it is a question of parity in the household for us, my God, did I feel tired. I felt tired, I felt resentful, I felt bored. Uh, I felt sort of, you know, there's no fun. Uh, and all you do is, so I think that 
that also, but you know, representation of that data is, is, is going to be a tricky one for us. And I'm not dodging the question. I'm just thinking that I think that maybe the way to start could be, one of, as you suggest, to say, okay, what will get it better? Now, one of the things that Catherine Hoskins has been working with um, on is, is really interesting, and that addresses your question, which is that she's, uh, there's a cooperative in Nicaragua, and um, they have convinced the body shop for which they are working to give money towards social reproductive work, right? Because it's supposed to be fair wage, and fair wage must include, you know, the subsidy that the laborer is getting from social reproductive. Now that has led, uh, for various personal as all these things happen, um, them to come up with a small little project. Uh, which would address the question of uh, how can we value social reproductive work. But already, even before the work is fully done, this subsidy which Body Shop is giving is producing real political tensions on the ground. Because the subsidy is being given to the cooperative which is doing the work, right? which the Body Shop is dealing with. The cooperative members have decided that this subsidy should be used collectively, so at a community level. But actually some people are saying, well, I, I do the work. It's my body that's being tired, you know, is, is de being depleted. How do I get the benefits of that? So immediately measurement is, is, is creating problems already. So I'm very aware of the political issues that, that we will be um, uh, looking at, but um, yes, and I just think I need more conversations like this so that I can go away and then see which route to take out. Um.
know. I don't know if you want to go down that road. But I mean, as opposed to capability, which is somehow, to me, kind of is much more neutralized. And I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, well-being and wealth <laughs> and, and so on. So I guess I was just wondering how you're going to deal with that. And I guess the last, the last thing relates to the example you just gave, which is about, um, you know, your partner having being, basically being temporarily disabled. But I was wondering about whether the literature on disability offers, you know, whether they've been working with concepts of depletion and um, whether that offers you any, any help or assistance in trying to flesh out this theoretical framework. Yeah, thanks, Marsha. Um, it wasn't just being um, good to you, it was being good to myself. <laughs> <laughs> not saying, um, uh, not self relations. I think that that's very much at the heart of the project because, um, in terms of mitigatory strategies, uh, increasingly migration is a big issue. Um, and I think whether it is east, west, or north, south, um, it matters little. It, it could also be in the context of the south, rural urban, which is a big thing. Um, and, and the production of cities, in a way, um, uh, affect, say, affecting um, this. And it was in that context that I, I mentioned Julie Graham's work, because she is suggesting in her work that the household itself has been restructured. Um, so uh, it, is, it is an important point, but it is very much at the heart of it, because, of course, capital itself is global. So you can't really understand these issues. Now, if you connect that, if you link that up with your second question about, you know, which is a kind of question about, well, how do you believe, or you know, how would you understand people's um, notion of tiredness? I have to say that is culturally affected, not specific entirely, but it is culturally affected, right? So. Uh, I think sometimes it's also affected not simply by, by class or anything like that, but it's affected by historical cultural norms of what, you know, and our, our ability um, to make claims on, on, on social um, systems. So the fact, that, and, and our vulnerabilities, so migrants very often end up doing much longer hours even when they don't need to, because they feel that they have, you know, a point to prove, or men against women, you could argue. So there's, they're really interesting and important I issues there. I suppose where the, uh, and to link that to your final point, disability issues uh, and health issues become really important is that they allow us to think through some of um, um, kind of benchmarks and with all the, you know, big quotation marks and exclamation marks around that word, um, that, that the human body, to go back to Elson's thing, you know, is, oh, it can take only so much. And that only so much is variable, uh, but there is a bottom line beyond which things will just begin to collapse. So now, can we identify that across north-south to come a full circle? Or would we end up saying, like you do on poverty criteria, or, or you know, the, the basket of food, or you know, the purchasing power, or would there be differences uh, that we can, uh, different measures that we can think of? We are very far from that just now. But at, at uh, the heart of the project, is if you if you notice the, the diagram, you know, we had the south on the top and the north at the bottom, and it is just a kind of, again, a recognition of the fact that this needs to be, it cannot be done only in one side. 
So I don't know, disability, I'm going to have to read that literature. I think I'm going to start supervising a PhD student on that, then I'll read. <laughs> Yeah. 
um, vouchers or or having good care facilities in, at work, um, good conditions of, of um, uh, support for both men and women. Um, and that's why I think Diane and, and uh, Anya's work was so fascinating that men kept talking about how they wanted to be good dads, but really it was all about sort of, you know, having, not all about, but quite often it was about more time for themselves and their hobbies and what they thought was actually increasing their own well-being. So it is the structural uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, framework around the household uh, which the state continually tries to readjust. It's not as if it isn't, whether it is in question. My, prob my problem obviously there is that, you know, and again, that goes back to some of the debates that Anne has been involved in in the past, but also I'm thinking of Mary Dietz and that book, the wonderful, you know, what is it, Dimensions of Radical Democracy, in which that article, she says, you know, the problem is not that you do not want to collapse, feminists do not want to collapse the spheres of the public and the private. You want to be able to say that we can struggle to make what is private public and that will be regarded as public, as legitimate. And that's where the counting comes in, you know? Um, but the collapsing is really dangerous, because actually, in my bedroom, what I do is my business, not yours. And it is private, and should be private. So I think there are those complexities that I'm trying to work through. Um, so, I, so on the one hand, I think that, you know, the carelessness scenario, how much did we have to struggle, the Indian feminist movement, emerged out of those struggles, right? Um, how much we have to struggle to gain recognition that these are not just accidents happening in the kitchen. These are actual murders taking place. And the form that it takes is a gendered form. Oh, she is sort of, you know, in the kitchen. Oh, she's wearing a sari. Oh, the sari caught fire because there are stoves there, you know, instead of electric plates or whatever. So I think the state regulation poses real challenges and always has done for for feminists, right? Um, so I think that's, we do talk about, um, you know, how to minimize. Um, and again, you could also do that in the context of um, voluntary or women's groups or, you know, changing discursive practices has been a big thing, sort of, you know, the fact that now we are even talking about sort of men staying at home and not feeling sort of uh, somehow that they have been feminized or emasculated or whatever ghastly terms that we want to use, um, those have been part of that whole ongoing struggle. So I, I, I feel that, um, again, like with the measurement thing, I don't have an answer to what you are asking, but I think we definitely have some indications of what we might be um, looking at. Would you be willing to take just one more question, Shuri? Thanks. Uh, let's see whether I can explain myself in English. <laughs> I have a couple of questions. First, um, if you distinguish the three different levels for defining depletion, uh, why don't you use these different levels for uh, explaining the reversing strategies? I mean, uh, it was very problematic for me uh, hearing you talking about hiring domestic work as a mitigator, mitigating strategy. I was wondering whether some uh, strategies could be mitigating at the individual or even the household level, but could uh, even increase the depletion in other, for other individuals or other households. So the key issue would be how do we, do we think uh, of those strategies at the community level or at the broad level, let's say. 
because it seems to me that it's connected to the tendency to uh, give private or individual solutions to collective problems. So uh, I would suggest of, uh, distinguishing those three levels when talking about reversing strategies. And the second question is, what do you mean when you talk about compensation, comp compensating the harm? What do you exactly mean by that? Next. I think um, the first question, uh, Amaya, is it? Um, yeah. um, I think I did address that. Um, it's, it's to say that uh, mitigation is a strategy, but it is individualized strategy. And that's why I suggested to you that in, in the paper itself, we are very clear that, in fact, mitigation can sometimes obscure the levels of depletion because those who can afford it are buying in, sort of, you know, they are actually buying in that labor and mitigating. But for the person who's doing that labor, it can be increased the depletion because now they are actually part of the labor force, but also, as I've said before, in terms of the household and the, the global care chain, it stretches so far across now. So Judy Graham's work is all about looking at um, uh, Indonesian women and Filipina women in Canada and seeing how their responsibilities to their households sitting thousands of miles away are being met through depletion of their own circumstances, not that she uses those terms. Because what they are doing is they're working under very uh, sort of, you know, difficult conditions in Canada, but sending most of the money back so that their families you know, and their children and their sense of responsibility or their elders can be looked after. And so the kind of inflow of resources that they could maybe bank upon through their income is also not available to them. So I think we are very clear about the, when we talk about mitigatory strategies, and I've also said just now about uh, replenishing strategies. You know, you can't talk about replenishment strategies in terms of policy without talking about all three levels. So the big society idea of sort of, you know, or, or uh, family credit idea in this country or individual income idea, you know, all three are linked. And, but what I said also was that these are not linear. The one doesn't lead to another, actually, because a crisis, an economic crisis, might lead the middle classes to be able to afford cheap labor. And so their level of well-being might actually be positively affected. While, of course, those who cannot afford that labor, who or those who are doing that labor might be negatively so, so that was, now, the second question was about the uh, compensation. Again, very early on, uh, there are some cases that have just uh, happened on um, two cases that we looked at. One was in India. The, the Supreme Court of India gave a judgment recently, I think it was two, two years ago, 18 months ago even, um, on a case of uh, a traffic accident um, in which a woman died and she was not uh, she was not working in the public sphere she was you know a homemaker and um, the insurance paid a very derisory amount for her um, as, as compensation for her life and that amount had been already um, you know uh, accepted by the, the lower courts. Um, and the Supreme Court actually gave a, a very strong judgment, um, which was really about valuing social reproductive work. Because what they accepted was the husband's uh, appeal, which was that the husband was working outside. 
he needed support. So it was all about what sort of, you know, Marilyn wearing and if women counted has already shown us or even Christine Delphi got a bit, um, you know, it's like if you've got a nanny, if you've got this, if you've got to go and, and do the cooking and the shopping and the, how much would it cost? So all of a sudden, social reproductive work became very visible in this compensation case. At the end of which, um, it was decided that it was a much higher level, and, and so the, the Supreme Court found in favor of the man in this case. But the Supreme Court also made, uh, in, in India, sort of you know, an appeal to the Indian Parliament, which was I found fascinating, saying that you should think about how you might address this issue. So this is what I was saying, that there are ways in which, so that's one case that we're looking at, and we're also looking at another case, which is on, again, sort of, you know, um, some sort of an um, accident case, don't ask me which um, case. Um, Dania Thomas, my, my colleague, she's looking at that case. Um, so we are trying to, the reason why we use the term compensation is to try and see yet another thread of saying, okay, how might we look at getting this problem addressed. So basically Diane's point, you know, that if things were to be better, what would it take? Um, so it was only in that context. That well, thank you very much, Yuri, for what's obviously been an extraordinarily innovative uh, um, body of work. And uh, I want to, um, first of all, invite you all to join us at the reception Gender Institute, which I can assure you is a much warmer place than this particular <laughs> lecture theatre, and and then invite you to join with me in thanking Shirin Rai for a wonderful.